If there were a prize for genocide, one man would have unbeatable odds of claiming it. He began life as a bright young revolutionary with enormous enthusiasm for change and fairness. But he devolved into a fat, dirty old tyrant who filled everyone with fear and loathing. He was at China's helm when up to 55 million people died in just four devastating years. His name was Chairman Mao, and he changed China forever. Blind History, Season 7, and I think it's fair to say this guy's a villain, right? Yeah, I would say... I think in the last couple of centuries, he's got to be the the leader that that had made the biggest change in China. So you have and, to look at both sides. You could even argue that he made the biggest change in terms of pulling the most people out of poverty. Yeah, I mean, you could, you've got to give some of that credit to the, the successor Deng Xiaoping, but this guy, I mean, well, Mao got, Zedong, right? Yeah, like, what a monster of a human being, monster yeah. in a good and bad way. Hundred percent. So. I don't really like the dude, but who cares what I think? We'll give you the opportunity to decide that as we tell you the story. Anthony Mitra, Gareth Cliff, Blind History. Let's get into Mao Zedong or Mao Zedong, depending on how you pronounce it. It doesn't really matter. It's like phonetic. And if you don't speak Chinese, if you don't speak Mandarin, it's not going to make a difference to yeah. you. So this guy, I suppose the best way to – I'll just read you the top line and then you can – we can fill in from there on. Chinese Communist Revolutionary, founder of the People's Republic of China, chairman of the Chinese Communist Party from its establishment until his death. Ideologically, you could call him a Marxist-Leninist, but they started calling his form of communism Maoism. And he was in charge of one-fifth of the world's population at one point. And without a doubt, China will never be the same. And could never have been the country that it is now without this guy at the helm. But having said that, the millions of dead bodies that are piled up in order to bring about the kind of social engineering and change that he wanted to initiate in China, that death toll, that cost is for some immeasurably high. And I think without taking due cognizance of the total number of lives that he not only ruined or ended, but all those people who were associated with those people who we've just mentioned. I mean, this guy, he did a tremendous amount of harm in pursuit of his goals. There's no right. other way to say it. So if he saved, if he's, if he's saved by improving medical facilities for rural areas and Bringing China out of the dark ages, let's say education. <clears throat> um, he took two lives for every one he improved. So it's, <laughs> and if we think about it, I don't think there's anybody on this planet that can be responsible. Let me say inverted commas for, for north of 70 million deaths of his own people. It has to be said. Yeah. This is not, this is not a warmonger who went to war with another nation and cost them lives. Yeah. This is someone who from the moment of. You know, the Chinese civil war beginning with the Kuomintang right through to his last dying breath in 1976 took out that many of his own people. Let's not even count the outsiders 
who he may or may not have even paid attention to. You know, there, yeah. were the, there was the Sino-Japanese wars, uh, two of them. There was obviously World War II. Um, and, and then there were plenty of other things that happened in between. But clearly, in the pursuit of these higher goals and these ideological imperatives, lives didn't really make a difference. No, he, he had total disdain for life. I think that in the beginning, and uh, we can unpack his, you know, his journey from when he was very young, but, but in the beginning, I think ideologically, there was, uh, yes, it made a lot of sense to him and, and what he believed in. You mentioned Marxism, you mentioned communism, mm-hmm. and later on became Maoism. Um, but the, I mean, he was more of a cult. He was more of a, oh, yeah. a like a, I don't know, a, no, in the a end, in the semi-divine. End, it became worship of a person. Yeah. And then I think that's where it got blurred because, and similar to, to Stalin, and for that matter, for even the fascists at the mm. time, the, they, they, they actually lost, they lost, lost, lost the feeling of what the hell was going on. They, they just went. Well, you heard the story. Have you heard the story of the mango? I did hear the story of the mangoes from Pakistan. Also. So, the, so a Pakistani delegation sent 40 mangoes to him as a gift. So he obviously couldn't eat 40 mangoes, so he shared them out among some people. And one of these mangoes ended up in a factory. And these guys tasted this mango, and they were like – they were blown away. No mm. one in China had ever tasted a mango before. They couldn't believe something would taste so nice. They believed it was magic, and they believed that Mao had in, invested this fruit with magic. And they put it in a glass jar – and as it started to rot, they put a wax version in there. And anybody who even said that it wasn't magical and that Mao hadn't blessed it with some divine provenance would have been killed. Yeah. I mean, if that isn't a personality cult, and this is in the 20th century, we're not talking about barbarians in like 300 AD. No, 100%. You know, yeah. We're talking about modern, educated people who were so in love with the idea of worshipping this man or where they'd been – propagandized to the extent that they believed this man was divine, uh, where they would give a fruit <laughs> this kind of power. You know, that's just it's, – it's a type that's of insanity. That's exactly the, the mango, the mango debacle. It's, it's, it's insanity. So where did he start off? He was, uh, he was the son of a, a reasonably prosperous, if you can put that in inverted commas, peasant yeah. in um, central China. His dad was – he bought up like two acres of land and – he was able to farm it fairly effectively, he hired some other people to work the land for him. He was a capitalist for all intents and purposes. And Mao, I think, was inspired by this, but he wanted more. Yeah. And he wanted to be an intellectual. He didn't want to work on the farm. So he was clearly clever. Yeah. I mean, a lot of these people who end up becoming really malignant, tyrannical dictators later on in life are very clever. Mm. He went to elementary school, did very well, top of his class and all that stuff. And then they pulled him out of school, tried to arrange a marriage for him, yeah, which he was not. They're the first parts of rebellion because you do not rebel against your parents in 1900s China. Yeah. And he rebelled and he said, and he said, and he just left, um, the, the, this arranged marriage and he hated that for the rest of his life. He left her high and dry and he, and he just disappeared. Yeah. And then he went to, to school. Proper school after that. And he did, he did pretty well. And he started reading. He was a voracious reader. He would read anything you put in front of him. Menus, roadmaps, anything. And became you know, a competent poet. Oh, yeah. You know, I read some of his poetry. and I mean, later on, his little red book would be considered the greatest literary work in Chinese history. Obviously, this nonsense. 
But, you know, one of the, <laughs> one of the Chinese intellectuals at the time said that Mao's one sentence was worth 10,000 of our sentences. Yes, but then let's just clarify that intellectual <laughs> because all the intellectual have been killed. So, yeah, so yeah. I don't know intellectual that intellectual. It was a, it was a shallow pool. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, <laughs> but those red books, I've got one at home. Uh, these were, if you didn't have it on you, you'd probably find yourself in a shallow grave. Mm. I mean, you had to have it on you yeah. the whole time. Yeah. But some of the photographs, but that's later on, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But some we of them were, ahead. but they were insane. But then he went to go study, hundred percent right. And then, um, when he was there though, and if we had to look at the whole world at the time, I mean, 1911, 1917, I mean, the, so all the, I think it was a bad time to be a king, queen or prince <laughs> on this planet <laughs> because you were seeing that everybody's being executed. I mean, if you look at the, the dynasty, the, the Romanovs, um, yep. and then the French, the, okay, the French revolution was way, uh, quite a lot before, but there was a whole lot of, especially in Russia, which was on its, on their doorstep. There was peasant uprising. There was that whole change that took place. And that happened in China as well. Yeah. And effectively he was, he was, um, he was the forefront there. He, he was well, the Qin dynasty, which had ruled China for years, hundreds of years, was eventually displaced. The last emperor was a, a, a two year old called Puyi. And clearly, you know, imperial governments had fallen out of favor mm. and China was in the throes of revolution, which most, most of the world was at that point. And, and Mao was very much at that point a, he was an enthusiastic supporter yeah. of revolution. Yeah. And he believed communism was the best way to manifest that revolution for the, for the benefit of the average Chinese yeah. person. And I think at this stage, well, look, I don't know what was going on in his head, but he hadn't snapped yet. So, no. you know, so no, you could say that. Yeah. <laughs> so he, was, he wasn't professing violence. Um, yet it was, it, it was almost, I mean, it was very ideologically driven towards, even in the beginning, there were some people that he supported that some part of capitalism slash democracy. There were, mm. there were a lot of, but he was, he was, he was reasonable. Yeah. I think, I think, that, I think that's a good point. Reasonable. Yeah. He was also young. Yeah. But there was a civil war at that point in China because the, Essentially, the government, after the, the overthrowing of the, of the emperor, the government had become a nationalist government. And the Kuomintang, under the leadership of Chiang Kai-shek, had become the dominant force in China. And this guy did not like communists. But just has to be said that Chiang Kai-shek was as unhinged oh, yeah. as, as Mao. Yeah. He was a complete nut job. So, by the way, if you want to know where Taiwan comes from, we're at the beginning stages of China and Taiwan and what would happen eventually. But the, the Taiwanese flag is still the Kuomintang flag mm. and the Chinese Communist Party flag is still as established by Mao. Yeah. But, um, essentially these two did not see eye to eye. Um, Chiang Kai-shek, as you say, was unhinged and effectively murdered hundreds of thousands of communists. Mm. He turned against Mao and the gang. Or, oh yeah. yeah. And these guys had to run and hide and they basically fled into rural China. And began what they called a long march. Mm. These Chinese communists who'd been sidelined and, and in most cases been redlined, they were going to be murdered if they were caught, mm. started a long march through rural China, the mountains, through farms, past every peasant village. And Mao took the opportunity on this march to explain how communism was mm. going to improve their lives, yeah. how he would make everything better. And he did essentially a – foot soldiers campaign of propaganda 
reminding people that what was going on with these warlords who the Kuomintang had put mm. in place was not the best way for this thing to operate. Oh. And effectively also, they had a few battles on the way. I mean, there was a lot of propaganda around the Long March. I think it's especially later on, it was the founding of this. Oh, yeah, no, no, look, they added a lot of bullshit. Yeah, 100%. But, <laughs> but, but some of it was, ve- yeah, was a very impressive history of the foundation of this party that, that eventually would rule. Could it have been a thousand miles? I can't remember the exact figure, but it was a very, very long way that they walked. But also at this stage, they took a lot of, uh, where they settled in the areas that they settled, they took f- the farms away from the peasants and gave them to some of the the Red Army at the at the stage. Right, and and then later they would establish these communes. Correct, yeah. But, that was but essentially, time. ownership of land, which clearly communists don't believe in, was starting to become something that they yeah. were against. Anyway, Chiang Kai Shek, at this point, realized also that he was in some trouble because the the Japanese had launched the Manchurian War. They tried to place a puppet emperor or a puppet ruler on the, on the throne. And he needed help because he was running out of steam and the Japanese were winning. So he decided to swallow his pride and make some kind of collaboration and alliance with Mao. So he took the, the communist party into his confidence, did, decided that they shouldn't be outlawed anymore, wasn't going to kill any more of them. So they, allied these two and the communists still had lots of energy and vim and vigor but the nationalists had run out of steam by that point but together they did manage to fight back and they did manage to push and it has to be said the japanese launched a a very brutal campaign against the chinese they wanted that whole northern province to themselves Uh, but the things that happened i mean the amount of oh that was was, murder and rape and just destruction that took place there is something which really is a blight on the japanese reputation even to this day yeah many chinese are still not forgiven them but stalin also popped in for a a bit of a help you know he (laughs) was because mao really 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 um looked up to stalin and um and at that time, they had a good relationship. Interestingly enough, when he went to visit him in, 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 in Moscow, he sort of treated him like a normal human being rather than this esteemed head of this, uh, five billion, sorry, 500 million people. Sorry, mm. apologies. And, um, and so he, that really upset him and he wanted to get his own back, but he got his own back on, on, on the next Khrushchev, Khrushchev. And he made him sit in a, in a very hot, Room with no air conditioning, <laughs> and then he, and then the next meeting he had was in a swimming pool, and Khrushchev couldn't swim, <laughs> so it was he was trying to get his own back. Well, we'll get to how uh, Mao didn't swim either. He also didn't wash, but we'll talk about that in a second. <laughs> Just to get the history under the belt, at this point, though, it, it is fairly clear that the Communist Party was in the ascendant, and that the nationalists were in decline. Uh, Chiang Kai-shek eventually had to give up and flee to Taiwan. And established that government and that independent republic there. So it's since then it's always been Taiwan and mainland China. And to this day, and probably not for very long, they remain separate. But um, it was always a bit of a thorn in the side of the communists that the nationalists had gone off to Formosa and established Taiwan. To this day, they also uh, maintain a very separate identity and a much more capitalist outlook on the world. I mean, China, it has to be said, is really communist in name only. Yeah. Because what's really pulled them out of rural and impoverished agricultural peasant population dynamics into a, a modern economy has been capitalism and, 
you know, places like Shanghai, manufacture, being able to sell things on the open market internationally, shipping, logistics, mm. that kind of thing. But I mean, this guy had some crazy ideas. But it started with, but Mao started actually with what you're saying in terms of that. He wanted to, he wanted to create his big, his, what his big vision was, was to make China a superpower. And clearly in 1900, it was definitely not a superpower. In 1970, was a superpower. So effectively, he did what he, he set out to achieve, but ultimately at massive, massive cost. Well, the great leap forward is, is kind of where he started. He had this idea that the great leap forward that they could, through social and economic campaigns, launch a reconstruction of the country and turn it from an agrarian economy into a, into a massive industrial economy. And they did crazy things like, for example, everyone in the country was put to work in factories where all they had as a background was kind of growing plants and food. Mm. They were melting down bicycles and, you know, steel that they built their houses out of and all kinds of other things. Yeah, so into, lots and lots of low quality, crappy steel yeah. just so that everybody was busy doing that. Maybe that's where project. it came made in China from. <laughs> Maybe in the old days where you just looked at something and fell apart. Well, the Great Leap Forward, you have to say, was more or less a failure. But there were all sorts of other weird things that he was doing. Like, for example, they had the Four Pests program, where they basically shot out – and you're a bit of a conservationist mm. – they shot out the entire bird population of China. All the sparrows. Tigers, leopards. So many of the indigenous animals mm. that lived in China were just exterminated to the point where many of them have gone completely extinct mm. and do not exist anymore. Because he believed they were pests that were stealing, yeah. you know, food crops. There was also a huge famine in the late 1950s, early 1960s. But I think, Gareth, just to talk, because the Great Leap Forward was really a great leap into just a burning pot of fire because the strict targets were set, you know, it, and targets set inverted commas because if you didn't reach the targets, could end up being quite sore, like you said, a shallow grave or some other uh, compound. But so people were beaten. So, uh, so, but the thing though is that they used to be Farming their crops, and that used to provide uh, that used to provide maize, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, for the country. So they were no longer doing that. They were now trying to melt down their bicycles, as you said. So ultimately, there's no food. So it's man-made famine, like our friend Stalin, and yeah. and he didn't give a fucking shit. This oak. No, but this is always the case with communists. They they have a goal that's an ideological goal, and in theory it looks great, but in practice it never mm. works. They don't take into consideration human nature. And when people are desperate and they're hungry, I mean, there's horrible stories about what happened, people eating their pets, people yeah. resorting to cannibalism, which we know from North Korea and we know from the Soviet Union seems to be a result of implementing these policies. Exactly. And 38 million people. I mean, it was one of the God. biggest famine catastrophes on this planet. Yeah. And then in the end, he realized, oops, hang on, I can't sell any of the steel you've made. Because you can rubbish. shoot sheep, yeah, you can shoot peas through it. So it's, mm. so if that, that really, that, that was one of, that was a catastrophe out of the top drawer. What I think you could say was a success is his cultural revolution because this is much more, this is much easier to do. This is like persuading young people that you are a god king, that you mm. exist on earth as some sort of divine spirit, that they must exterminate all of your enemies. And he started this with the students who, you know, their heads are soft, mm. which is why so many good and bad ideas come out of universities. But essentially it was a socio-political movement in China. It started around 1966 and lasted all the way till his death. And the goal obviously was to preserve Chinese communism. But what they did was they destroyed 
everything that old China had, old Chinese culture, old Chinese habits, old Chinese traditions was all destroyed. Old and, Chinese people. And, and the Great Wall was torn apart mm. so that they could build dams out of those stones yeah. from the Great Wall. I mean, there's so much of Chinese history that has been thrown into the fire that we will never be able to learn. Yeah. We'll never be able to recover. And you and I are history fans. That's why we do this podcast. The, the richness of Chinese history was almost completely obliterated by this man's desire to socially engineer a new China. And he kept jeering them on. He, he never, he never ever said, no, no, stop this, stop this. And the end, this, these, the group of you started turning on themselves because there's nobody else to kill. Right. I mean, it's, you eventually run out of victims. Yeah. And you start victimizing each other, but they used to do ridiculous things. Like they'd find intellectuals, they'd pour ink on their heads, they'd shout at them, they'd do what they called struggle sessions, where they essentially tie these people up and beat them until they admitted how they were wrong, Mm. even though they weren't wrong. It was like under duress. And foreigners, there's a, there's a story of a British foreigner that came, came to, that brought his family because he's disillusioned by communism in, at the time. This is at the, the, the cultural, just before the cultural revolution. So he went to China because this is where he felt Mao was the man mm. and taking it forward. And <laughs> when they, the, the three or four years later, they locked them up in a hotel for two years, one little hotel room for two years, the family, that's the, the mother and the father and the son and, I don't know how they managed to escape. They dodged a big bullet oh and they, God. and they ended up back home. But just all of these things. It, it, so all the foreigners were deported. Anybody else that was against it were murdered and you couldn't control this mob effectively. Mm-hmm. He didn't want to. No, no, it suited him at that stage. Also, there were, you know, he had, had failed in the great leap forward. He'd been for a while exiled to the provinces and, and some other people took over. His two lieutenants who eventually were also displaced when he came back into power. But now we're talking about a guy in his seventies. Mm. So he's a little bit addled. He never used to wash. Um, he believed like he, he would wash himself with his women. And he had a, a, a group of women that he would travel around the country with. Um, some of them quite young and pretty. And he would give them STDs because mm. he was a filthy, filthy old man. Um, he had a 16 year old secretary at one point who was so powerful that she controlled his wife's access to him. And he... That was for 10 years, one of his concubines. That's exactly... You said he didn't believe he needed to brush his teeth. So what happened was that the story went with the teeth, which is really, really flippant, freakish, is that he would only use tea leaves. He would rub his teeth with tea leaves, and then he started to get pus in his gums. Oh, God. And and then the, the, the physician warned him, look, let's let's um you need to really wash your teeth. This is really getting bad. And he said... Does a tiger brush his teeth? That was yeah. his answer. So it's, so he never ever brushed his teeth. He never bathed. He just swam and, uh, in the, in the Yangtze River. But the Yangtze, that he still had, uh, but that was when he came back. So what <laughs> happened was he came back now. He was, he was in exile a little bit, like you yeah. said. And then I can't pronounce the, 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 the guy that took over from him, finally him, took over from his wife. Right. He, he, um, he was sort of running it at the time and he came back and he jumped in the river and he swam. I think it was eight times faster than the world record. No, well, in we, the in the river. Yeah, you know, well, we know that's nonsense. I mean, he was already a man in his seventies. Yeah, I mean, the thing with him was that he didn't. He never walked the walk. He had fifty estates that he would because he was always on the run. He, you know, mm. he was he was very worried about that. Right. But he had fifty estates all around China. He um he he had his concubine, so he didn't he didn't practice what he preached. Nope. And then he was he was the only author. 
or publisher in China. Nobody else was allowed to publish any books. So he was making millions from his red book. And even his estate today is still <laughs> making millions from his red book. So, Yeah. Uh, he also fell out of favor with the Soviet Union. They eventually closed down all diplomatic relations between the two. Um, he did have a huge influence on the establishment of North Korea. And in the Korean War, obviously, China threw their weight behind the communists in the North. And obviously, in the South, in Vietnam, he backed Ho Chi Minh and helped to establish that whole uh, regime. But the guy was already starting to become a bit crabby and old. I mean, famously, um, who was it? It was it was uh, Kissinger who went to, to visit him. And he said to Kissinger, don't you want – 40 million of our women. I'll send them to you in yes. America. You can have 40 million of our women. These women are a problem. Mm. They just cause trouble. Yeah, this exactly. <laughs> Kissinger didn't know how to respond to this. Are you going to take 40 million Chinese women into America? He's like, no, thank you. Um, but famously also Nixon, um, had started to, to, to make rapprochement with, uh, China so that they could, I mean, that was quite a, a an insightful move on Nixon's mm. part. Because he realized like China could be a major manufacturing yeah. economy and they needed to be a partner rather than an enemy. But really by the end of his life, he didn't have a whole lot of friends, but people were still terrified of him because yeah. one bad thing that he could say about you could still end your life, you know, yeah. right up to the end. People were terrified and he did not brook any kind of discussion around succession. Who would take over? He wasn't interested. Yeah, he was. He thought he'd live forever, and and his physician kept warning him. The same poor physician with about his teeth. <laughs> Surprised um, he survived. And you know that that he said, look, you need to stop smoking. He was a chain smoker. He said, look, I mean, smoking is good for me. I deep breathely when I do. It. I, I breathe, breathe deeply. deeply when I when I do it. And then all the other thing is is that this is a really really frightening thing. And and I, you know you never know if it's hundred percent true. But his wife had to have the disgusting task of. Getting, getting the, um, getting the fingers to empty his bowels manually because he had such Ugh. a bad constipation. And luckily she, she found the process of enema to help him. So, I mean, anyway, I mean, this oh. is quite scary. <laughs> <laughs> well, he eventually had two major heart attacks and then they announced his death. Everyone went quiet. It was, Oh God, what's going to happen now? They preserved his body in formaldehyde and put him in a glass casket where People could walk past forever. You think that the Queen of England was lying in state for a long time. Well, this guy's been lying in state ever since he died. And people still file past. The, so that's 50 years odd. Yeah, it's a long time. Nearly 50 years. And uh, <laughs> his mausoleum is still there. In Tiananmen Square. Yep. Uh, which is ironically the place where later on Deng Xiaoping and now Xi, Chairman Xi, uh, would uh, – would launch, you know, their big May Day celebrations, show off the Chinese military, uh, make sure that the rest of the world could take them seriously because they were a mighty nation, but also where famously the, the Tiananmen massacre happened, yeah. where, you know, a, a student and many others were just rolled over by tanks. And it continues to be a country where you're not really encouraged to have individual thought. You must toe the line. It doesn't matter what you think of Chinese history. The only thing that matters is what happened since Mao came in. Mm. There was no history before the oh. communists. And I think, you know, there's, there's just murmurs of going back to its roots now a little bit with the present regime. And it's making a few people nervous, especially, you know, because it is a massive – you mentioned it. It's a, it's a powerhouse. I mean, so many of us are reliant on importing raw material mm. from China. 
he would have been furious, Mao, if he'd seen what Deng would do later yeah. on. Because Deng basically opened the gates to, to mm. capitalism and said, yeah. okay, let's, let's start participating in the world. And Mao would have been furious. His yeah. biggest fear was that China would go back to being capitalist. Of course, that capitalism saved and rescued millions, if yeah. not billions of people from poverty. Uh, the greatest improvement in living standards for that number of people in human history. So in some ways, he maybe laid the groundwork for what would eventually be the salvation of so many people. Yeah, I think if, if it's very similar to Hitler. You know, if Hitler would have walked away in 1939 or 38, people might have said, you know, he, he, a hero. Yeah, and the same applies to him if he would have walked away in the 50s. Mm-hmm. But he didn't. No. And there's just... I mean, it, yeah, it's, it's hectic reading this stuff, Gareth. It's it's really just um, living in, you know, we talk often about the times we live in. But if you can just imagine, you know, you're born in, in into this in, in this country and you're subject to, it doesn't matter who you were. In the It could have been the peasants. Then it was the peasants against the intellects or the middle class. Well, I mean, eventually it was the bourgeoisie because he had to find a new enemy. Exactly. And, and, and then once they were exterminated, then it was about like, the, his own red army turning on each mm. other. So you were permanently sort of unstable and on the run living in the, in the, must have been China. horrible. Yeah. Must have been horrible. And they still got portraits of him all over. And his wife is, you know, so he was married three times, mm-hmm. but the wife that was with him when he, when he finally passed away, she, um, she had been an actress. Yeah. But she, she would. Quite an incite, attractive woman. Yes. But she would incite violence. Um, she was his puppet. He hated her, you know, at the end. But, oh, well, she also had a whole bunch of lovers, just like he did. Yes, and in the end, she took control of China when he died, with um, together with the Big Four, I think it's called something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, Deng Ping basically put her in jail, and then that was the end of that. <laughs> and then she committed suicide. Her name was Zhang Cheng. Correct, yeah. Or, or they called him Madam Mao. Sure. Well, here he is. I mean, if you, if you really like the guy, uh, then you need to have your head read. But... Many Chinese people still regard him as the greatest human being who ever lived. And you know what? I was not the reason why. All we have in this podcast is the opportunity to tell you the story. I mean, he, he's, you know, if you, if you want to take the propaganda view, greatest literary publisher in Chinese history, um, the man who founded modern China, Olympic swimmer, Olympic swimmer, <laughs> clean, lovely human being, everyone loved and wanted to be around. Um, but you can probably read between the lines. Thanks for listening to this episode of Blind History. Every episode is available on the Cliff Central app, cliffcentral.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the next episode... I think he was taken out of Africa at the age of eight as a slave. And because he was a slave of noble origin, he was a particularly prized possession. And he was sent to the court of the Ottoman emperor. I think it was Mustafa, the then Ottoman sultan. 